Good morning. I want to welcome everyone this morning. I'm going to ask you to turn to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. And a special welcome to our Guatemala team and Hope and Future who are watching online via live stream. So they're joining us from Guatemala. Isn't that exciting, huh? The blessings of technology. So, bienvenidos. Esperanza y futuro. Un gusto verles esta mañana. Proverbs chapter 3. And this morning we will consider verses 11 and 12. Before we begin, let me just give you a summary or of what we have seen in this passage. When we first started looking at this passage back in March of this year, I explained that the purpose of this section is to show us a picture of true living faith. Even though it is our conviction that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works, it is also our conviction that faith is never alone, meaning true living faith is always accompanied by its fruits. Faith is always at work in us. Faith is a living thing, for it is the gift of God. Therefore, true living faith will look a certain way, like an apple tree brings forth apples, so does faith brings forth its own evidences. And we saw first how faith submits to Scripture, according to verses 1 and 2. It says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. That was the first work of faith that we saw. Next, we looked at how faith expresses itself through love, as seen in verses 3 and 4. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. The third work of faith we gleaned from verses 5 through 8, which is that faith puts no confidence in the flesh. Verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And then we also saw how true and living faith rejoices in submissive stewardship, as shown in verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your, all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This morning, we are looking at our final work of faith as revealed in verses 11 and 12, and it is this. Faith, that is true faith, living faith, rests in God's fatherly care. Faith rests in God's fatherly care. Let us read together verses 11 and 12. Listen to the reading of God's word. My son, do not despise the Lord's, what? Discipline. We love that word, don't we? Do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves 
as a father, the son in whom he delights. As we enter into our considerations this morning, I want to quote from the Heidelberg Catechism, and then I'm going to ask you a simple yet penetrating question. Here's what the Heidelberg Catechism says, quote, the eternal father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made heaven and earth with all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, he is, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father, on whom I rely so entirely that I have no doubt, but he will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body. End quote. That's the statement. Through Christ... God is my Father, and He provides all things necessary for soul and body. Do we agree? Can I get an amen? amen. God provides everything that I need. Amen? Now, here's the question. Do you always know what you need from God? Of course not. We always think we know what we need, but truly we often don't know what we actually need. We know, at least intellectually, that God does care for us as a father cares for his children. What we are prone to forget, however, is this, that at the heart of this father-son analogy, or shall we say reality, is the need for correction is the need for correction. You see, God has created the world in such a way that the most important lessons from him are embedded in our very human existence. The human body is a living analogy of the church. Marriage is a living analogy of Christ and his bride. Likewise, the father-son relationship is a living analogy of God's care for us. Therefore, the implications are inescapable. Correction is always needed. And here's where we must begin, if you're following along in the notes. We begin with the indispensable element, the indispensable element of God's fatherly care. And what is that? Divine discipline. Divine discipline. What is divine discipline? Discipline. When we talk about discipline or reproof, what are we talking about? Here's a short definition for us to work with. Divine discipline can be understood as providentially ordained afflictions. Providentially ordained afflictions for the sake of fatherly correction. Providentially ordained afflictions for the sake of fatherly correction. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, David prayed the following. He said this. You know this verse. Many of you know it. Search me, O God, and know my what? My heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When David says to God, lead me in the way everlasting, David is essentially asking God to treat him as a son. 
Lead me in the way everlasting. Father, God, treat me as a son because that leading into the way everlasting will by necessity involve God purging David of any sin that might be found in him. And this process of cleansing, purging us from sin, often, brothers and sisters, involves pain and afflictions. In essence, David is asking God, do whatever you must do. Do whatever you must. When was the last time you prayed this? God, do whatever you must do in my life to make me fully yours. That is quite the prayer. That is quite the prayer. God, treat me as a son. Treat me as a daughter. And you know what God will do? God will answer that prayer. God, being a good father, will lead his children in the way everlasting. And this will involve afflictions. It will involve suffering. It will involve discipline. David, of course, since we're talking about him, he's the classic example of this. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 51. David is the classic example of what it means to be under God's fatherly care. After Nathan, the prophet, confronted David for his adultery with Bathsheba, and having been deeply convicted of his sin, listen to what David says to God in Psalm 51, verse 7 and 8. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Listen to this. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God's care for David, this leading him into the way everlasting, involved an indispensable element the breaking of David's bones. I believe that to be an expression of David's deep, almost unbearable sorrow due to his sin. It felt as if God had broken his bones. And don't miss who did it. God. The bones that you, God, have Broken. This is the indispensable element of God's fatherly care. At times when we go astray, God breaks our bones. And this breaking can sometimes be just a pinky finger, which is painful, but it gets your attention. But in the big scheme of things, the recovery is fairly quick and easy and is not as disruptive. At other times, however, it can be your legs, and the pain can be such that you are barely able to walk. Life can be severely disrupted, and recovery is a long process. And this is what we know as God's discipline or reproof. Notice also how discipline is intimately connected with God's providence, hence the definition that I gave you. Divine discipline is never random, but always providentially ordained. It was God who allowed David to follow his own heart and fall into the severe consequences of his own lust. 
Now, before we move on to the next point, let me briefly deal with a question. What is the difference between fatherly discipline and vengeful judgment? Discipline is reserved for God's children only, while judgment is given to those who remain in unbelief. And there's a big difference. Now, I am aware that discipline and judgment are used interchangeably. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 11.32, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, said this, but when we are being judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then the question is, how can we tell the difference between judgment and discipline? It is by the end results. It is by the end results. God's children, when under discipline of the Lord, are always and eventually led to repentance, while those under judgment are always led into further and further rebellion. Therefore, now we begin to connect with the next point. What we do, how we respond when under severe trials and afflictions matters tremendously because it reflects who we are. I am not saying that every trial and every affliction in life is a manifestation of God's discipline upon us. That is certainly not the case. But when we are under God's discipline through afflictions, our attitude is of utmost importance. This is most clearly revealed in the next point, which is the ever-relevant warnings. The ever-relevant warnings concerning God's fatherly care for us. There are two specific negatives, negative responses, that we must watch for, especially when the hand of the Lord is heavy upon us through discipline brought about by, by afflictions of various kinds. But before I mention them, let me take a brief moment to remind ourselves that these warnings are there in the text because our tendency, even as Christians, is to assume a negative attitude when we are under afflictions. We are prone to wonder, as the hymn says, we are given to rebellion. Therefore, our passage is calling us to remain humble. Let us be careful not to be like Peter, who said to Jesus, even to death I will follow you, only to be found moments later denying the Lord in front of a young girl. Instead, we should say, Lord, should you bring discipline upon my life through afflictions, give me the grace to trust you and keep me from sinning against you in the midst of my sufferings. As 1 Corinthians chapter, 12, verse, chapter 10 verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he, what? Fall. Now, having made that important clarification, let us see how Solomon warns us then concerning God's fatherly care. And the first response we must avoid when under God's discipline is hardened defiance. Hardened defiance, which is what the word despise means do not despise the discipline of the Lord. To despise is to, despise is to look with disdain, with resentment or scorn at God's dealings with us. And this can take many forms. One commentator explained it well with these words. To despise the Lord's discipline is to have, quote, an undutiful spirit, carrying little whether his father smiles or frowns. 
the chastening is lightly passed over. He is irritated by looking at the rod rather than at the hand that inflicts it. He shrinks from searching into the cause. He disregards his father's loving voice and purpose. Hence, there is no softening humiliation, no childlike submission, no exercise of faith looking for support, end quote. Now, let me just dwell for just a few moments on a few specific words from that quote. To despise is when we shrink from searching into the cause of our afflictions. This is how hardening defiance can manifest itself in our lives. The person under the rod of God's discipline does not take time to search for the just and righteous cause that lies behind the affliction. Rather, they just focus on the rod itself, forgetting in this way that the Father, through afflictions, he speaks and he has a purpose in our afflictions. Saul and David are examples in contrast. When Saul heard that the kingdom was going to be taken from him, instead of looking into the cause behind those words, he went to a witch for guidance. David, on the other hand, when shown his sin, he confessed his sin and he repented because he understood that the cause of his afflictions, the cause of his pain was his own disobedience. Saul became hardened in defiance. David became softened in repentance. In afflictions of any kind, brothers and sisters, let us not become hardened toward God in defiance. Rather, let us search our hearts. And with David, with David, let us ask God to show us if there be any sin within us of which we must repent. In other words, let us not waste our afflictions in complaining. Rather, let us ask the Lord to soften our hearts and to lead us in the way everlasting. The second negative attitude we must avoid is fatalistic acquiescence. Fatalistic acquiescence. This is the weariness of which uh, Solomon speaks. Charles Bridges gives us a good word of summary of an explanation as to what weariness means. It is to, quote, refuse to be comforted with hope. To be weary under afflictions is to refuse to be comforted with hope. To be weary under God's heavy hand of discipline means we become like the Stoic philosophers. The Stoics were fatalistic in their interpretation of life and simply accepted whatever came their way, even their afflictions. What made them Stoics, however, was that their acceptance of their lot in life, even their afflictions, came without understanding a greater purpose in it. This must not be the case with the child of God. On the one hand, we accept the discipline. We accept afflictions. We don't complain to God when we are under afflictions. But on the other hand, and unlike the Stoics, we must fight to see beyond the dark cloud and find the good purpose in it. For we know who is in charge of the cloud. Hope is the one thing that never dies. But I understand the objection. You might be thinking to yourself, why should we respond this way 
Why should we not become hardened in defiance? Why should we not become fatalistic when under severe trials? What is my motivation for responding that way? What reasons can you give me for repenting of those attitudes and assuming a more God-honoring one? Give me one good reason. Well, I'll give you two. Two reasons why we should not respond in those negative attitudes when we are under the afflictions that come from God. And two reasons that are so powerful in and of themselves that should be enough for me to rest my case. And here are the, the glorious indicatives, the glorious indicatives behind God's fatherly care. Now, before I say anything else, let me remind you of what an indicative is. As the word indicates, an indicative points to or indicates a fact. An indicative simply reveals how things are. An imperative is a call to action. Do this or do that. An indicative is a truth that transcends how we might feel about this or that or what we do about this or that. An indicative is a statement of fact. It is a statement of truth, actuality, reality. And undergirding everything that the Lord does to us and for us, including the afflictions that may come our way, undergirding all that, there are two glorious indicatives. Ones that we must simply behold in faith. Why does God do what he does? Why does he allow us sometimes to walk into afflictions? Why should we not become hardened against God or assume a fatalistic attitude when things don't go our way? Why shouldn't we? Here's the first indicative. Holy love. Holy love. Love. Listen to verse 12. For the Lord reproves, he disciplines. Who? Him whom he, what? Loves. Loves. As John Piper says, the afflictions God may send to us in this life are never motivated by punitive wrath, but always and only by purifying love. Puritan Octavius Winslow asks, and I quote, Is the discipline of God with you a discipline of trial, of sorrow, of suffering? Still is God the God of love. And from his love, all his discipline of trial springs. Love will control the furnace, temper the flames, and conduct the whole ordeal to so beneficial and holy a result as will cause the desert to ring, the desert to ring, and heaven to resound with the music of your thanksgiving and praise to God, end quote. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Love is the leading motive behind God's fatherly discipline. But that's not what the modern world believes, is it? In fact, the world's conception of love is in all actuality diametrically opposed to the biblical understanding of love. This is what we might call humanistic love. Humanistic love is a love without holiness, is a love without law, 
rather than love, the world believes in cheap sentimentality in which your feelings are the ruler, the standard, and the norm for everything we do. How you feel about anything must rule over everything. As one author says, any conception that has love without law and holiness will be relativistic and self-serving. Love without law and holiness is the epitome of lawlessness, end quote. Love, according to this fallen world, is everything that allows you to be, to do, and to think whatever your heart desires. But in reality, you know what that is? That is hatred. That is hatred. It is hatred what fuels the narrative that tells homosexuals to remain in their sin. It is hatred. True love, true love is always Holy love, hence always the need for correction. You see, embedded in the doctrine of discipline is the idea of holy law. You cannot be corrected without a standard you can transgress. God does love us, but his love is holy, meaning his love is in perfect harmony with his holy character, which is revealed in his written Law, As the Apostle John teaches us, God is love, 1 John 4, 8, but God is also light, 1 John 1, 5, and in him is no darkness at all. Therefore, God's love for us is a sin-destroying love. God's love for us is a sin-destroying love. And when his children fall into sinful ways, God loves them enough to purify them in the fire of afflictions. So what's the first reason why you shouldn't become hardened in defiance or fatalistic when under afflictions of any kind? The first reason is because God's discipline through afflictions are first and foremost a manifestation of his holy love for you. What you have endured, are enduring, or will endure through afflictions is not because God hates you, but because he loves you enough to cleanse you from the sin that he actually hates. Here's the second indicative. Gracious adoption. Gracious adoption. Verse 12, once again, the Lord reproves as a father reproves the son in whom he delights in whom he delights. Why shouldn't we complain when under afflictions of various kinds? Because God is treating you as a child, as a son, as a daughter. God's love for us is not only holy, but also fatherly. Therefore, the call to trust and endure under discipline, under afflictions, is a call to remember who we are in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And who are we in Christ Jesus? In Christ Jesus, we have been given the right to become what? Children of God. Children of God. It is only through faith in Jesus that we become what we are not by nature. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were by nature what? Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
Apart from faith in Jesus, we are children, not of God, but of his wrath. Therefore, embedded in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12, is an invitation. An invitation directed to those who are far off. What's the invitation? The invitation is to come and to believe in Christ Jesus so that you might receive adoption as sons and daughters. If you are walking far away from the Lord this morning, God himself is calling you to come to him through faith in Jesus and receive adoption into his family as a son or as a daughter. And God will welcome you as a son or as a daughter if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, you will be forgiven, you will receive all the blessings of adoption. But our, our, our adoption comes with all the benefits, including fatherly correction. So now let's spend a few moments looking at some of the sanctifying benefits, some of the sanctifying benefits of God's fatherly care through discipline. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. There, there are so many that we could list of the benefits, sanctifying benefits of God's fatherly care through discipline, but I will limit myself to four. And the first sanctifying benefit of being under the affliction that comes from the Lord, this correction from the Lord, this discipline from the Lord is this. Discipline brings us back from our rebellion. That is the first one. Discipline brings us back from our rebellion. Notice Psalm 119, verse 67. Notice what the psalmist says. Before I was afflicted, before you allowed suffering in my life, what did I do? Verse 67, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Discipline through afflictions has a way of refocusing our minds and our hearts upon that which really matters. And afflictions loosen the hold of our hands from the sins that entangle us. Once again, when under afflictions, Don't become hardened, but search your heart and see if God, your Father, is graciously disentangling you from something that only afflictions can bring to light. Only afflictions can bring to light. Number two, here's a second benefit, sanctifying benefit. Discipline sweetens God's word sweetens God's word. It makes God's word sweeter. We continue in Psalm 119. Consider verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Notice verse 71. It is good for me that I was what? Afflicted. When was the last time you said that? When was the last time any of us said that? It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It takes faith. It takes real, true, living faith to be able to say this. Verse 92. 
Oh, I love verse 92. I would, I would recommend you memorize verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. In verse 107, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. It is interesting to me that for the psalmist, every affliction in his life was meant to do what? Did you notice the pattern? Every affliction was meant to bring him back into a greater appreciation and love for what? God's word. God's word. When we are seeking to become wise in our own eyes, at times the Lord will shake us up through afflictions to remind us that the true wisdom is in his word. We will return to that at the end. For now, consider the next benefit of discipline, the next benefit of divinely ordained afflictions. Discipline, number three, reminds me that God is faithful. Reminds me that God is faithful. Psalm 119, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have what? Afflicted me. In faithfulness you have afflicted me. Interesting truth, isn't it? God afflicts his children not because he's angry, but because he's faithful. But because he's faithful. Faithful to what? What is, what is God faithful to? Faithful to his plan for me. And what is his plan for me? Paul says it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. What does it say? God will bring to completion the good work that he started in me, in Christ Jesus. He will make me like Christ. He will make me like Christ. He will make me holy. He will do that through times of blessing, through times of peace, through times of abundance, but also through afflictions and also through sufferings. Thomas Watson very helpfully said, quote, The famine was good for Jacob, for it brought him to Joseph. Sometimes God's children must see the world's emptiness through afflictions, to be acquainted with Christ's fullness, end quote. And this brings us to our last benefit that I wanted to mention this morning. Number four, discipline magnifies the worth of Christ. Discipline magnifies the worth of Christ. Please listen to this. If you're asleep, it's time to wake up for this one, Okay. One of the never-ending reasons and one of the never-ending lessons, one of the never-ending lessons that the Christian must learn is this, that the calamities and afflictions he endures in this life will always be tamed by grace, motivated by holy love, and never proportional to what his sins actually deserve. That's the point that hurts sometimes. 
None of the afflictions we endure in this life are proportional to what our sins actually deserve. Why? Because of the Lord Jesus and his cross. Watson again, very helpfully, he said, quote, Christ has drawn the poison out of every affliction. Christ has drawn the poison out of every affliction. How? How did Christ do that? Because only Christ Jesus, listen to this, only Christ Jesus suffered what our sins actually deserve. Don't ever forget that. Only Christ Jesus, the Son of God, only He suffered what your sins actually deserve. Don't ever forget that truth. He endured actual condemnation under God as his judge so that I could enjoy discipline under God as my father. On the cross, Jesus endured the curse of abandonment under the law so that by faith I might enjoy the blessings of adoption under grace. Jesus endured God's vindictive justice upon that cross as though he was a guilty sinner so that I could enjoy God's fatherly discipline as a justified saint. Therefore, God doesn't discipline me to condemn me, but to further cleanse me. What a counterintuitive truth. Fatherly discipline is a blessing from the cross of the Lord Jesus for us. Because Jesus was judged under wrath, I can be disciplined under love. In fact, here's the central truth of Christianity. Here's the central truth of Christianity. The father crushed his son so that he could delight in me. The father crushed his son so that he could delight in you. There is no higher, there is no deeper, there is no wider truth than that. It is the best news that I can give you at any day in your life. The father crushed his son so that the father could delight in you. Christ redeems everything, even our afflictions, for through our afflictions, we can be reminded that it is well with our soul. So what do we do? When we are under severe afflictions, we remember the cross of Christ. Whatever you do, when you encounter afflictions in life, don't ever forget the cross. Here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. Here's what we gather from all of this. God is committed. God is committed to my blessedness. You know what blessedness is? I put it there for you, true joy, true happiness, true happiness, true joy. God is committed to my blessedness, true joy, and will use everything, even the rod of correction through afflictions to help me understand that his ways are always what? better than mine and to make me like him. 
God is committed to my blessedness, my true joy, and will use everything, even the rod of correction through afflictions, to help me understand that his ways are always better than mine and to make me like him. As Charles Bridges so memorably said, quote, God will melt you in his furnace that he may stamp you with his image. God will melt you in his furnace that he may stamp you with his image. Just like wax must be melted before it can receive the imprint of the seal upon itself, so too we are often called into the heat of God's fatherly discipline in order to further make us more like himself. So this week, I invite you to take some time to reflect on how God has taught you or is teaching you important lessons through painful circumstances. After that, here's my invitation. Give thanks. I remind you what we're talking about. True living faith. Only true faith can give thanks to God for afflictions. How do we give thanks in afflictions? Here's a five-piece advice from Puritan William Cooper. First, under afflictions, always pray earnestly for the Spirit of God. Pray earnestly for the Spirit of God. Second, labor for an awareness of sin because this will make you grateful for every mercy under affliction. Every mercy will become sweet when you become aware of your sin. Number three, behold every mercy that comes to you and know that all that passes through God's hands is for your benefit. Four, keep track of answered prayers and also of blessings for which you haven't even asked. And number five and final from Cooper here, consider how everything that draws you closer to God is a special blessing. As Charles Spurgeon says, um, everything that leads us to prayer is a blessing. Everything that draws us to God is a blessing. And here's some extra advice humbly from me. In your afflictions, do not seek to pry into mystery. Do not become speculative. We don't always know, nor can we always know, when God is sending afflictions to our lives for the sake of correcting certain sins or for other purposes. But knowing with precision what is going on at all times in our lives is not the point. Herman Bavink Theologian says that, quote, God lets the light of his word shine over many enigmas and mysteries, such as punishment, suffering, and death, not to solve them, but that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. That's what this is all about. I cannot pretend to know all the reasons why God has allowed sufferings and afflictions in your life or mine. Regardless of God's own perfect and providential reasons, what we know is that we are called to be steadfast and to be encouraged in the midst of our afflictions in order that we might experience and know the hope that is unmovable in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't seek to unravel the mysteries associated with every affliction that comes into our lives. Rather, seek to understand your hope which cannot be moved for it is rooted in Christ his cross, and his resurrection from the dead. So I want to finish this morning by quoting a prayer from 
Charles Bridges, which he wrote in his commentary on Psalm 119. We noticed that for the psalmist, every affliction is meant to bring us back to the Word of God, to create, to evoke, to elicit a greater love for God's Word in which we find truth, sanctification, and the reflection of God's perfect holy character. So please listen to this prayer as we bring our time to a close. And I quote, Heavenly Father, let not any measure of prosperity which you may be pleased to bestow upon me prove to be my curse. But especially, Lord, let every cross, every affliction which you are pleased to mingle in my cup conform me more to my Savior's image. Restrain my heart from its daily wanderings. Endear your holy ways and word to my soul. And give me sweeter anticipations of that blessed home where I shall never wonder anymore, but find my eternal happiness in keeping your word. Amen.